Hi there, welcome to Movement Matter, a podcast that talks about conscious movement and the role and importance of it in our society. I will bring along some practitioners, teachers and students of this matter, as I am interested to know how people approach conscious movement from different working fields. I hope I can inspire you to also look at movement from a different perspective, bringing more healing and liberation into your life. Thank you so much for tuning in and I hope you have a good time here with us. Hi everyone, welcome to my first podcast episode. Today I'll be chatting with Gyan Randev, a Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu coach and a Kundalini Yoga meditation teacher. And together we will talk about the importance of movement in our lives, how we deal with it in our daily practices, and hopefully inspire you to approach movement from a different perspective, contributing to a healthy relationship with your body, your mind, and your spirit. So hi, Gyan Randev, welcome. Thank you for being here today. Um, I'll start by asking you to introduce yourself a little bit more and talk about your work. Okay, so yeah, my name is Gianon Dave. I'm a Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu coach as well as a Kundalini Yoga instructor. Um, I've had a lifetime of athletics. I started playing sports as a kid um, and moved around a lot. And I mostly grew up here in uh, Louisiana in the United States. And I, I played a lot of sports growing up, but I really connected with wrestling through high school. And then at the end of my wrestling career in high school, I went on to Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu. I've been doing that for over 10 years now. And um, in Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu, I was watching a documentary called Choke with Hicks and Gracie. And he was on the beach and he was doing Breath of Fire. And uh, it's a Kundalini exercise. And he was talking about how important it was for his training. So to become a better fighter, I decided I probably should learn that. I'm just like the most revered fighter of the time. And he, uh, he was just constantly saying how it was such a huge thing for his training so luckily my teaching assistant happened to be a kundalini yoga teacher so it was perfect i asked him hey could you teach me this he showed me some breath of fire and i said where in la can i learn and he sent me to nine treasures yoga with uh, Paige park Tulsa, and i just started studying with her ever since and um, i just found the combination of the two are absolutely fantastic Yeah, I was actually about to ask you about that, because first of all, for those that are listening to us and don't know anything about Kundalini Yoga, could you explain a little bit what is this practice about? Yes, yeah, so Kundalini Yoga is a combination of uh, yoga movements, which are, uh, we call the asanas, so Kundalini Yoga, we have Pranayama, which is our breath work, and we have meditation and mantra, and it's one of it's considered in india they called it raj yoga there's different sects of yoga but in the west most yoga that people refer to is hatha yoga or it's a form of hatha yoga we have the ashtanga the ayangar the vinyasa and so kundalini is a very separate practice and a lot of misconceptions come into play people think it's just an exercise system um, because you do exercise or they think it's uh, a religion because it's closely tied to the yeah. Sikh religion. Yeah. Um, the individual who brought Kundalini Yoga to the West also brought Sikhism to the West, so they think they are um, not mutually exclusive, but they can be, uh, they're totally separate, um, although some people choose to practice both. And it's really, people see it a lot, and they use it for the healing aspects as well, but it's really about being a, the most effective and efficient human being possible. So there's a quote I always like to say, um, Abraham Lincoln, the U.S. president, said, if you gave me five hours to chop down a tree, I'd spend the first three hours sharpening the saw. I find that's a great analogy where uh, whatever you do, you know, whether it's a Brazilian jiu-jitsu fighter, a dancer, that's just in the physical. You could be an accountant, you can be a mom, a dad. Um, you know, that's chopping down the tree, but the axe in this analogy is being a human. You know, we're all human. So this is um, really one of the fast, it is the fastest way to grow in consciousness. It's not everybody's path, but it's the fastest. And, um, but for just making supreme health in the body, the mind, and the spirit, and then it just makes you more effective in anything. So that's a little bit about the practice. Um, there's just so much you can do from it. It's just such a rabbit hole once you get into it. 
Right. <laughs> it was designed to make people superhuman. And uh, a lot of people use it for healing or their own practices, but that's where it transfers over so well for athletes and movement specialists. Totally. I really connect with what you say because for me, since I started doing Kundalini Yoga, I really felt another layer of body wisdom and then that contributed to my dance practice. And as you said before, your practice in Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu and Kundalini Yoga, once were, they were merged, it was really like another step for you. How, in what ways did Kundalini actually um, served Jiu-Jitsu for you? Well, there, there's so many ways, but the ones that really stood out was on the physical um, realm, the pranayama just made it so I didn't breathe. Like it opened up my diaphragm. I'm breathing not only more efficiently, but I'm holding more oxygen. So that was huge. That was one of the main things. The other two is one of my weaknesses is a lot of martial arts, you have to be really flexible, jiu-jitsu, you don't. So I was always extremely strong. Um, that was kind of what I was known for. I was very technical, but my mobility wasn't that great. So it opened up my body, um, especially jiu-jitsu guys and wrestlers tend to be really caved in. It helped open up my posture again. So that was really huge. So in the physical, the breathing and, the, uh, and just the posture and the mobility was really huge. But on, you know, the mental, emotional, it's a big thing, too, because it works on that as well. So you're more present when you're fighting. It clears out. A lot of fighters fight with a lot of anger and a lot of tension. Mm. Hear that mm. out. They think that helps them, but it actually hurts you because you're not being as calculated as you could be. So the fighting becomes more tactful and more strategic because you're not, you don't have that emotional element to it. it it's not necessary to be a good fighter cold and calculated when you're training so strategically that was really good and then on top of it it naturally outlines the body so so much falls into place you naturally start eating healthier you naturally get rid of any vices like a lot of fighters they have vices whether it's alcohol or marijuana um, and it really gets rid of a lot of things that come with overtraining as well you know hormonal issues and so just across the board, it just really fixed the body, but it also just allowed me to fight with a, with a different clarity and I think less attachment to the outcome. And the irony is when you're less attached to the outcome, the outcome is always better. So um, I think that was a big part of it is just uh, people always assume yoga and most Hatha yogas just work on the physical, but with the Kundalini, the mental, emotional aspect just as wonders for anyone who has to perform under stress. Right. And you also mentioned something that I find super important. That is the fact that normally physical activity can be addressed in different ways. And in some sports and in some practices, sometimes it is really about the competition at the and the outlooking of the thing, while uh, I think what Kundalini does to you as you start implementing into your life is really to get this consciousness, as you said, and approaching everything much more carefully. And um, this makes me wonder, um, in what ways do you approach your body on a daily basis, meaning like a daily practice? What is your way to access your body and tuning in every day? Do you have something that you do in order to get into this state of mind and physical body that you know that you need to be and want to be in order to be at your best? Yeah, I think the main thing for athletes is consistency with their routine, but while still being able to adapt. So what I mean by that is like I have my, my sadhana I do every morning and I practice with my future page. And a lot of the stuff I do um, is geared towards just being more athletic, but um, it's also important that you just add the little things into the lifestyle, like little dietary changes, but be consistent over time. Um, when you, one thing that's really sometimes frustrating as a teacher is you realize how many people have never stuck with anything for a long time. Like, uh, I mean, you see it in Kundalini, people who progress really fast, they had another discipline. May it be a sport, may it be a dance discipline, may it be uh, some 
usually it's an athletic or something that's physical where they've known they have to be consistent for years. Um, a lot of musicians as well, but people have to play the long game. So people really want to sprint, but it's a marathon. So with Kundalini, people often, they get really excited with how much they can accomplish in a couple of months. But you have to be thinking, okay, what's my 40 year plan? Now, you know, what, what am I going to be doing for five years, 10 years? And I think the long game as well. And what I find that helps not only as an athlete, but as a yogi is just having some like non-negotiable things to do every day, whether you don't feel good, whether you feel good every single day, but then just finding those little consistencies of, okay, like I'm going to switch out my coffee for cordyceps tea. You still get the same energy boost, but it's not a stimulant and it oxygenates the body, you know, things like that. All right. Well, um, cutting out, I mean, I can't, I try not to be too preachy about this because people get very sensitive, but for the more serious practitioners, cutting out like the marijuana and the alcohol and stuff like that, because it inhibits your growth as an athlete and as a yogi just tremendously. And it's hard because if you go forward with that and you're just speaking the truth, people think you're being religious or dogmatic, but it's just not true. You know, finding those little things that impede your growth and then finding those little things that accelerate your growth and just seamlessly putting it into your daily habit. Because, you know, someone who does 10 years of drinking, you know, warm alkaline water with lemon versus 10 years of drinking black coffee that's going to have a massive difference in your health 10 years down the line so it's kind of a little long-winded but the point is is just finding incremental habits that you can stick with every day like we always say doing three minutes of kundalini once a day is better than doing 90 minutes once a week. <laughs> yeah and and it's funny that you say that because i really feel it as we said a bit before Kundalini really brings the subconscious mind into the conscious mind. So you are all of a sudden very aware of all your patterns or of your toxic thoughts and negative thoughts and things that are really not serving you. And I find that it's almost impossible to not do anything once those things are there for you. And it takes a lot of responsibility also, as you said, commitment to go through them. But I think once you you know better, like you have that awareness, then it's almost impossible to not do something with it. And and so then you become really your own teacher in the sense. And it's something that you mentioned and I wanted actually to talk about it uh, because previously uh, we discussed a little bit about this guy called Ido Portal that I actually didn't know about and I'm very grateful that you introduced me to him. Um, and I was watching one of the links that you sent me and he says something that I find fascinating and I want to quote because I really find that sentence amazing. He said, um, basically, we are all teachers, whether you like it or not. Someone copies you, you are a teacher. Someone stops you at the streets looking for directions, you become a teacher. It's something that it's a piece of human culture being a teacher and then also being a student. Information is toxic and it's addictive and we run after it. We have this thirst for information, but at a certain point it turns on on you and it paralyzes you, freezing you up and it doesn't allow you to apply and learn and it's not anymore contributing to your development. When I heard this, I was like, wow, he is so right about this. And I think that the point here is that um, once you become aware of the things that are in your subconscious and, and, and you bring them into the conscious mind, then you can really also become more mindful of all your behaviors and be aware that everything that you do, all your actions are somehow being received and seen by the people that are around you. And, and then you really have this teacher role and at the same time you are aware of everything and you become less judgmental so you also are the best student and this dualism between teacher and student is something that I'm really interested about and I know that you are a little bit as well into that so I wanted to hear from you how is it to be 
a Kundalini yoga meditation teacher, but also at the same time a student of life? Yeah, I think um, it's funny. The best way to become a teacher is just to really love being a student. I mean, that's what it was for me. I didn't really have any plans in the short term to teach. Um, I just was like taking teacher trainings for me. I just was, um, I always say with spirituality, it's like, uh, I got this from a teacher of mine. He's like, the key word is, you know, a spiritual practice is a very, you help a lot of people, but you got to help yourself first. And you're always a student first. And I really like what you brought up with that Ido Portal quote about, uh, you know, information and that we're coming from the information age and you see a lot of people and whether it's the Kundalini community or spirituality, you know, from the Buddhists to the Mayans, they talk about the new age, the Aquarian age, like 2012 on versus 2012 before. And what's so important right now is people are just overwhelmed with information. Even 20, 30 years ago, you know, information, knowledge was really power. You know, you could, if you had information that other people didn't have, you had a lot of power. But now we have the internet in our pocket and people are just flooded with information. And a great example is like right now we're dealing with such craziness in the world with the pandemic and stuff like that. And everybody has access to the same information, but they're all mixed up and everyone has a statistic. So, you know, as a teacher, or a student, the number one thing is experience. You have to have experience. You can't learn to swim by reading a book. Yeah. All this knowledge, but if you're not in it, I mean, it doesn't do you any good. I mean, it, the same can be said for dancing or martial arts, you know, having information does nothing. You have to get on the mats and spar. You have to get in the dance room and move. And the same can be sped, said with spirituality. Um, it's frustrating because people who are getting into spirituality, like any beginner, they don't have any discernment on like, okay, who's good, who's making stuff up, you know, where's the credibility there? And it, it's one of those things where people don't need a religion. They don't need a bunch of uh, just knowledge. They need to have a self-sensory experience so they can understand spirituality. And a great example I have was I really liked philosophy growing up and I still do to an extent. Um, I'd even go as far to say, I think it's a little overrated a lot of the time. I think there's use for it. But when I got to college, I was able to take some philosophy classes and I just noticed like the guys who are teachers of philosophy at these really nice colleges I were going to they were all like miserable old drunks. <laughs> and so they had all these years and just tons of experience of, or not experience, the wrong word, tons of knowledge and information um, in the most profound philosophy, but they didn't become anything. Right. And I think it's because it, it was all in their head. It was all cerebral. It wasn't intuitive. It certainly wasn't in the body. And in becoming a teacher, you have to be a student first because you need to constantly be having experiences. I mean, it's nice. Um, people will talk to me about Kundalini, but I tell them if we just talk about Kundalini, it's either going to be about how interesting you find the discussion or how interesting you find my personality to be. But that's not really what it's about. Um, that's just being like a salesman at some point. It's you need to have a practice and do it for a couple weeks. So then you have the experience of the practice and then you have um, a certain wisdom and understanding of the practice that you can't get through just discussion and reading a book. So things like that. So I think Ido has just such a great point where he just emphasizes experience over information. And uh, I think what really just sets teachers apart is they're just the most dedicated students sometimes you know um i got asked to teach because i was just constantly showing up as a student and sometimes they kind of put people put themselves to teach which can be really great too but as long as you're always a student first and you're going deeper in the subject matter you, i think you're really going to thrive as a teacher because it becomes contagious when 
people see someone who's really obsessed and is really caught fire with something special, they tend to flock to that. And that's really important. Um, so definitely as a student, um, going deeper and just kind of letting the teacher element uh, develop the time. Right. And you said something so beautiful there as well. Um, the fact that it's not about the inform how much information you have, but rather what you do with it. And it's it's funny because I've been introduced to Kundalini Yoga last December, so it's also something new to me. But I've been going deeper into it. And I have heard many times that for some people, it is, and this is actually addressing a point that I mentioned before, for some people it's super scary to face everything that it's being brought up and therefore it becomes too much. So they say Kundalini Yoga might be dangerous or whatever. And I I was wondering what kind of advice would you give to people that do know that there is something like, let's say, they know something is wrong with them and they are not feeling good, they want to change, they want to make that step, but then they are there before the step that they need to do. And there's a lot of fear around. So what would you what would you suggest to these people that maybe have the willingness to try, but are still hesitant? What would be the best advice for these people? Well, the thing is, I've heard that so many times that like Kundalini yoga is dangerous, but it's, that's, it's not really the yoga that's dangerous. Anytime I've heard where people have had issues, which is very rare, is either they're doing drugs, like heavy drugs, heavy drugs and kundalini don't mix. And it's not the kundalini that messes them up, it's the drugs, but they're doing it with the kundalini and they mixed up. And two, if they're not doing the track practice as it's taught, and then it's just simply not following directions because you know, everything from driving a car is dangerous. You know, if you drive on the wrong side of the road, you know, don't blame the car for your accident. Right. <laughs> it's, it's really the heavy drug use. And then people will blame, oh, I was doing Kundalini and something happened, but their nervous system's not ready for it. Um, and then on top of it, it's people doing it wrong. Um, and then there's issues. But if I've never seen someone do it correctly and have like any sort of problem with it and I do it all the time and it's enhanced my health so I would just think most of the time when people say oh kundalini is dangerous they don't really know what they're talking about they just heard but like jujitsu is dangerous dancing is dangerous you can hurt your ankles but with that being said I think uh for people who have kind of fear of getting started and working on themselves I think the number one thing if they want just kind of like an intellectual paradigm shift is they have to realize that so many people are going through the same thing. Like it's kind of relieving when you start counseling people and people come to you with their problems, you just realize everyone's a mess about something like in, but before that you're in your head and you think you're the only one who has anxiety and depression. These things have become taboo, but no humans ever lived. And I mean this serious, like, from the most enlightened monk to the everyday person, there's never been a human being that's lived and hasn't experienced depression and anxiety. It's just totally normal. But nowadays, there tends to be some shame and guilt around it. And the number one thing I tell someone who's afraid of starting is they have to get any shame and guilt about their issues just like out of the way. And the reason why I say that is I was listening to a psychologist that works with like very, um, very intense criminals. I mean, people who do the most horrible crimes you can imagine. And she said her job is not to fix these guys. It's to prevent them from repeating the past. And she said the worst thing for that is shame and guilt. She goes, if shaming them and guilting them for what they did was effective in stopping them from repeating it, she'd do it. But when she does that, they're more likely to repeat the habit. It's a vicious circle. It just confirms, you know, if you think you're a low life and only a low life would do this behavior, it, it like matches because it's like, you think, well, that behavior is acceptable because I'm no good. And then I'm no good. Therefore it's acceptable. Like it's just a vicious circle. So no matter what anyone's done or where they feel emotionally, 
they just they have to understand it's not who they are it's just a really small part of where they are right now you know it's it's not a big deal it's the same with training the physical body if you're really overweight you don't need to feel bad about overweight you don't need to think about being overweight you just need to have a set a good diet and start exercising there's no shame there's no thinking about it you get a game plan and you move forward and the same thing can happen with people with anxiety and depression or people who have a lot of regret or guilt for things that they've done you come up with a game plan for where you want to go and you don't need to think about you know your problems i really firmly believe that a lot of talk therapy is really over overrated because people just they just vent on their issues and it's important to talk about them but there has to be and this is where we talk about kind of kundalini really balances masculine and feminine energies there has to be a little bit of release mm -hmm. that's more the feminine side talking about the problem the emotional side but there has to be the masculine side where you get a practice and you start practicing every single day so you know if you do a three-minute meditation to work on depression you know that's going to do way more for you than thinking about or talking about your depression so I think people who are a little apprehensive to start, what they just need to do is just be easier on themselves. You know, especially now everyone's so hard on themselves and they're so hard on others. Just see any type of emotional is issue, like a physical issue. If, you know, you're, you have a cold, you need to take some vitamins, maybe rest a little and, you know, then you'll be fine. The same with these emotional things. It's, you, it can't be personal. It's just something that you have to get done. And when people stop seeing it as a part of themselves and start putting their self-esteem into it, it's just incredible because they move so fast because it just becomes impersonal and it becomes business-like instead of uh, them defining themselves by it. So uh, long story short, just lighten up. <laughs> exactly. And, and you mentioned again the fact that it's so important to get physical and I really feel that there is a point with the experience as you said that this intuition becomes very sharp and you start to know and to listen to your body better and this is something of course that needs to to be first experienced um, by these practices that you do whatever it is these daily practices that you start to do for yourself but I also feel that um, this intuition this sharpening of the intuition is so important and so life-changing that I, I myself have been experiencing um, a lot of shifts since I started to do Kundalini Yoga in the sense. So I was wondering, what is the big difference from the Gyan Rande of before, this daily practices and this uh, commitment and, and getting physical, and the Gyan Rande of today? Oh, so I, if it's about the difference with Kundalini has just been tremendous. I'm just so much happier. I mean, I could go into so many different things on how my health has changed, on how my personality has changed. Um, but one thing that really stuck out to me that I think is really important for anyone listening to this, that my teacher Tej once said that uh, really resonated with because before Kundalini, I, I was always a very ethical person. Like I was, I didn't have like a scoundrel past. I'm not per perfect, obviously, no one is. And that's the first thing when people teach spirituality, they're always trying to find out how you're imperfect, but we're just, we're all just people. But I was, I came from a good upbringing, like um, the deep South where there was like very Christian and Bible Belt and moral. and. So he's living as a good ethical person, but my life was just constantly, I just felt like a mess, like nothing seemed to go right. It was awful. Like, and I had a great attitude and I was, but Paige once said something, she goes, you know, sometimes people are really good people, but they're just off energetically. Mm -hmm. And I always try to keep my vocabulary when I'm teaching this, uh, as grounded as possible because sometimes people get turned off by vocabulary that's too abstract for them um 
because it doesn't make sense yet and that's okay but the main thing is sometimes people are just off energetically and I think that was a big part of me where I mean now before and this is where it's really interesting and I'm talking about the outer world because it all starts from within but you really start to gain confidence in the practice when you see the results in the outer world like before there could be a nine out of 10 chance things that were going to go right. And somehow that one out of 10 just seemed to always hit. Like I always felt like even with the best attitude, even when I look back now, like insanely unlucky, like could not Mm -hmm. believe it was just constant obstacles and problems. And I'm just like looking around, like who else is constantly dealing with this? And now today, I feel like I'm on the other end of that spectrum. There could be a 99% chance things are going to go wrong, and that 1% just happens for me. And I wish I could explain it and intellectualize it for people, but I really can't. Um, But I just know it kind of, you know, you always see on Instagram posts and self-help things like change the inner world and the outside world will happen, but they don't tell you how to do that. And with kundalini yoga and a consistent practice, and it takes some time, it does. With everything, it takes time. Um, But with a consistent practice, it's just really great because your vibration, your energy shifts, and the world around you shifts. And in a way, I could put that where people understand, you just stick with the practice and things start to change about you. And you might not even notice them. But then mm-hmm. the people who are attracted mm-hmm. to you in business, in romance, in friendship, everything just gets upgraded constantly. And pretty soon you're on that positive cycle where good things are happening to you. So it's motivating you to practice deeper. And then you practice deeper and more good things happen. And it's, it's constantly going up. And yes, there will be, there will be hard times, but that's the beauty of the practice is it makes you more durable. I see a lot of people, they go to healing and they're trying Mm -hmm. to heal, but then they go out and get broken again. But with this practice, it heals you, but it also gives you sort of fortitude, a sort of strength. So when those turbulent times come in life, you can handle them better. So, I mean, the analogy I always make out here in California is the waves are going to come no matter who you are, you know, whether you're the most enlightened being or you're the lowest being like the waves are going to come what the practice does is it just teaches you how to surf them better and I think that was the biggest thing for me was I always had big waves to my life and before I was just getting smacked by them versus now I'm just like I ride them pretty effortlessly and uh, that's what I'm most grateful for from this practice is the ability to adapt to my circumstances and just have a really fun happy life um despite what's going on around me. And don't get me wrong. There are days where, you know, <laughs> I feel so enlightened and someone cuts me off in LA traffic and I'm <laughs> you know, <laughs> yelling at her. But that's just part of being human. But exponentially happier is kind of the end game of this practice. Yeah. And it's very important that you're saying that because it's not about, I think there is really a miss interpretation of people when they think about meditation that meditation you do meditation to make yourself happy or you do meditation to be just elevated and enlightened and i think it's really about the strength and building the space for you that you are able to receive and go through everything and it's not just about being happy of course there's days really we feel like shit and we we say things that we don't want to say Um, But I do want to address this point again, because you talked about communication and how you start to use your communication in a different way once you are in this practice. And um, I am also interested in talking about the mantras that we use in the practice and the sound frequency, our own sound frequency, and how healing can it be to to use it and to express it in a way that we were not used to before. I'm talking for myself. Uh, but what I found with um, this mantras and and this me doing this sound frequencies in my mind and feeling them vibrating in my body really changed something. And I started to also gain more confidence 
um, being able to speak uh, in situations that before I wasn't. So um, can you talk a little bit more about this also and the power of mantras? Yes, that's um, that's really great topic. And that's really interesting to hear that, how it gave you that confidence to speak more. And you're clearly very sensitive if you're feeling it in your body because a lot of people don't feel that right away when you do the mantras. But yes, everything in the universe is sound. And this is not uh, some hippie new age philosophy. This is <laughs> physics. You know, we put metaphysics in front of it. It's physics, whether you, um, I mean, Nikola Tesla discussed this. I'm sure any physicist will tell you that it's sound and it's a vibration. So, you know, it becomes something we see as tangible or skin, water, uh, you know, the body in general, but everything is just a vibration. And what mantra is, is it is a sound current that is at a higher vibration. And there's other forms of sound therapy with Tibetan bowls, and the gong. Um, I consider the gong to be the strongest if you really want that uh, sound therapy. And that's what people talk about when they shift your frequency and they shift the vibration. Because, you know, specifically with the gong is like a lot of people lay out maybe these gong layouts and your nervous system starts to vibrate with the gong and then you start to change that's where you start to have shifts that's where you start to have these different um kind of ascensions and downloads and you're waking up and it the whole practice is about sound um even when we're doing the yoga and we're doing the breath work you're using a mantra for example one uh, common mantra in Kundalini, as you know, is Satnam, S-A-T-N-A-M, and you can pair it with the breath, and that's what really causes different shifts, and one of the most amazing things that happened with me when I was learning, I wasn't totally, I think my intellect was really kind of dismissing this sound current uh, and sound healing, which was insane because I was experiencing the benefits of sound healing, like, a hundred percent experiencing it, but for some reason I couldn't quite believe it, um, despite my own experience. And one thing that really resonated with me was I told this to a guy I taught jujitsu with. He's a coach in Santa Monica, and he also happens to work with kids with uh, special needs and kids who are really on the spectrum, very very special needs, and it can be a very difficult job because he has to get them out of bed sometimes, help them do their morning routine. And he said one day he was dealing with a client of his who was a young kid, but was one of the most difficult ones, very stubborn about not wanting to do his morning routine. And he goes, I remember what you told me about mantra. So I put on White Sun's mantra group. And he goes, I just started playing the mantra. And the thing with a lot of these kids who are called special needs and as it's a disability, but it's really just, in my opinion, another form of diversity, is the mantra started playing. And he said, out of nowhere, this kid who wouldn't get up all morning, he just stood up, got out of bed, did his entire morning routine, and started eating breakfast. That's the end of his routine. And um, this coach I was talking to, he goes, I went to turn off the music, and the kid stopped me. He's like, no, music kept playing. So regular music it's it can be very emotional and i love music like all kinds of music but they're different things you're listening to your tunes and you're kind of relating to that human aspect but with mantra it's about moving energy through the body and that's exactly what happened uh, with this kid here he was a little depressive and depression is nothing more than energy stuck in the body and the mantra went on and the ener his energy started to move throughout his body. And I'm very fortunate. Depression's nothing I've had to really deal with personally, but I've seen people just paralyzed by it and where they can't get out of bed. And when the mantra started playing, it gave this young kid the strength to get up out of bed and do his routine. And again, he didn't have to think of anything. It didn't have to be intellectualized. It was just that sound current was able to cause a shift in frequency in him so he could do what he needed to do. So it can be very complex to intellectualize, but again, it's something that people experience with time and often playing it when they sleep. They play the gong when they sleep and the next day they wake up and they just feel incredible. 
and it's because their energy is different. Yeah, what an amazing story. And I also wanted to bring it up that um, playing mantras as you are sleeping, it's really something like a life-changing thing. I started doing it myself as well, and I, I really feel, as you said, like the difference when I wake up and the energy just there. And, and it's important maybe to say that it, and correct me if I am wrong, but this happens because we are playing it during our subconscious mind or our subconscious uh, period of time. And therefore it really like um, directly accesses those things that are there. And then it makes a, the difference and, and you really feel differently when you wake up. So I just suggest to everyone that is hearing us now that to try um, because it's really something uh, that is life-changing. Yeah, I mean, it's incredible. The mantra while you sleep practice is so huge. And I remember there is a, I believe he's a hypnotherapist, Bruce Lipton. And he kind of discussed what we talked about earlier, where he was reading so many books and getting so much knowledge, but his life wasn't changing. And I don't believe Bruce Lipton's done is a has does Kundalini. At least I don't know if it's public. But he discussed that what he noticed changed his life was the 20 minutes as you're falling asleep and the 20 minutes as you're waking up, your brain goes into a theta state, and so it's very the subconscious is just wide open. So when he was falling asleep, he was putting recordings, not mantras, but I think just affirmations of things he wanted to change in his life. And it completely changed his life because it was going straight into his subconscious. And with the mantras, as you're falling asleep, while you're sleeping, especially between those Amrit Vela hours, those are like three to 6 a.m. for most people, um, the subconscious is wide open. So when you have a mantra that works on a part of the brain, whether it's insecurities, whether it's fears, and that's playing as you sleep, it's incredible because you just have music playing when you sleep, but over the course of weeks and months, you start to see yourself change in um, whatever that mantra is to work on, but you start to see pragmatic results. And that's what's so beautiful is, um, you know, what I love about mantra, and especially mantra during this technological age, is for people who, you know, they have rough days and they don't don't want to get out of bed like the child I discussed earlier but I'm talking about adults and when they don't want to meditate and do things like that they can put the mantra on and have that energy shift and especially playing it at night that's one of those little habits that we discussed earlier is just by having that mantra playing when you sleep is a spiritual practice that over months and years will completely change the trajectory of your life and it's that simple and I'm inspired to hear how much it's helped you already just playing it as you're sleeping and I don't know what are your experiences with that I it, it's funny because sometimes I go to bed and I have this feeling that already it's a habit that I created so it helps me to fall asleep as well but I normally put a timer until the time that I know that I will fall asleep. But I have tried as well to put one throughout the whole night. And how I decide which mantra I'm going to play, it's a bit intuitive. I, if I'm feeling in a certain way, then I play a mantra that knows that I know that addresses that somehow. And um, I really just feel uh, when I wake up more clean and 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 out of toxins i don't know how to explain but i actually feel lighter and um since i started doing that i i found it to be a little like superpower super secret that i have so i really feel that um it's a a, a easy way to access that and uh, that state of being where i am calm and in my knowing and i also wanted to to go back to what you said about the um, recording your own voice, because that's something that I haven't done yet, but I am interested about, because I heard that that's even like, not, I will not say better, but a really heavy experience in the sense that it really addresses you and uh, touches you in a different level, because you're hearing your own voice and, and this thing about um, 
feeling the power of your own voice it's just so amazing and once you can access that and you start to build this practice and you are committed to it then somehow you feel like everything that comes on your way it's it's okay it will it has to come to your way but you have the energy and the capacity to receive and act in your uh, true self like knowing what to do and and that was the big the big shift for me the big transformation i i just started doing it and then one day i couldn't stop doing it anymore so now i'm really really grateful that I found that and it's something that I I like to do also in the morning just while I'm making my breakfast to loop a mantra and to have it in my space I feel somehow that also helps to clear the energy around the room um, that I feel somehow that it's very um, affecting me in a way if I don't feel good in a space I try to make it in a way that I will feel better Uh, but yeah it's just about getting more in tune with yourself and finding your ways to do that. And definitely mantra is one that I am very interested about. Yeah, that's incredible. I mean, that's really great. Yeah, like you said, using your own voice is incredible because it's your own sound. It all goes to sound. And um, it's always just so tough to, again, discuss because it's not, it's an intuitive experience versus like an intellectual uh endeavor and but that's that's great you've had that experience of just playing that music and i like how you said you intuitively pick what mantra you need that night and that's Mm -hmm. just really great because sometimes people just like one consistent thing every single night um and then other times people it's again it's very adaptable like okay i'm feeling a little bit anxious this one calms me down you know, I'm feeling a little bit in my head. This one just makes it so that's really great how you're you're able to just kind of have the self awareness of what you need in that current situation. Mm-hmm. And I really think this is about the listening that we talked before. Uh, I also noticed that I start to be very sensitive. Uh, with all types of sounds, uh, it's almost as if I started to hear better. Also. And, or maybe just really more aware of the sound frequencies and the, the sounds that everything does, even my own body, like my heartbeat or my breath. That has been a huge shift for me. I am breathing so much deeper and and enjoying also the sound of my breath. I think before I didn't even remember if I was breathing or not because that's something I was just not aware of. So it was a big, big uh, shift for me. And again, um, coming back to what we talked about already, um, this was one of the ways that it served my dance practice. Also, as you said a bit with the Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu, the fact that we are breathing more and giving more oxygen to our bodies just helps everything else. And it's, if not the most important thing, I would say really something that needs to be there in order to have um, the best... um, let's say performance that you want to have so i think again coming back to encouraging our listeners to start to do a daily practice where they start to feel better and more in tune with their body and access movement as a healing or a liberating practice breath is one of the things that they can start from really it's just that simple they can start with just a simple breathing exercises from the left nostril and right nostril um but if you want to add some more little uh, exercises of breathing that they could try for themselves, please feel free. I'll be happy to hear. That's great. That's one of the best ways to change is through the breath. And uh, the two things I always tell people to go through is, um, I mean, the alternate nostril breathing is really great too. And the thing when they're doing any breath, long, deep breathing, is to make sure that when they're inhaling, the diaphragm's expanding. And then when they're exhaling, it's going in. So when you inhale, your stomach should fill up with air like a balloon. And then when you exhale, the air should go out the same way air goes out of a balloon. But the thing is, people do it opposite. So they're pulling their stomach in when they're inhaling, and that's incorrect because you're not getting a lot of oxygen. 
so you can do wonders for your health. If you never do Kundalini yoga, just take that one principle, practice maybe before you go to bed, throughout the day, until it becomes second nature, is long, deep breathing, filling up your stomach, making it as expanded as possible, and then releasing the breath. That'll change everything. Um, and you can even place your hand like right below your belly button. That is a point of contact. And fill it up with air, stomach big, and then exhale. And really stick with that. You can even add a mantra if you want, sat on the inhale, nam on the exhale, but really just stick with that until that's just part of the regular way that you breathe. And that'll take care of so many things. For example, anxiety. They say people with anxiety have breathing problems, but that's completely backwards. People with breathing problems have anxiety. So when you fix the breath, specifically that paradoxal breathing, uh, you're going to feel a lot more calm throughout the day but calm and energized at the same time. That's a beautiful combination. And then if people want to have another breath practice, the second one I recommend is practice three to 11 minutes of breath of fire every day. Because once you have that long, deep breathing and you're properly breathing, and you understand breath of fire, you can usually hop into just about any Kundalini class flow. And the breath of fire is the rapid inhalation, exhalation through the nose. Um, and they're equal inhales and exhales. Um, and you focus on the nose and the navel will naturally come in on the exhale and out on the inhale, just as we did with the long, deep breathing. But long, deep breathing is always first and foremost, making sure you're filling up the diaphragm with air and then the breath of fire second. But um, people who are under a lot of stress, you can apply that long, deep breathing to that alternate nostril breathing as well. I remember I about fell out of my chair because here in the United States, when Hillary Clinton lost the election, she was teaching alternate nostril breathing on, I think like CNN. And she's like, this really helped me cope with losing the election. And I was like, never in a million years would I wow. be seeing Kundalini yoga on CNN being taught <laughs> by Hillary Clinton. But it happened. And uh, if that could help someone dealing with stress from losing a presidential election, I think that could help just about anyone. Exactly. <laughs> uh, well, thank you so much for your time and presence. It was a pleasure to have you here and talk to you. I hope the people that are listening to us are inspired and maybe have the agency to contact you and follow one of your Kundalini Yoga and get started with this uh, practice in order to help them to get more in tune with their bodies and feel better. Again, thank you so much. It was a pleasure. And I hope we keep in touch and follow this path of breathing deeper and getting active. Thank you. Absolutely. Thank you. It was a pleasure. Thank you for listening to this episode of Movement Matter. If you feel like, please share it with your friends, family, and people who might be interested in the topics that we talked here today. I hope to see you in our next episode. Until there, have a good time. <laughs>